Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to 2 Samuel 24, if you're able to pull it up on your phone, uh, if not, you can just listen along. What a privilege it is to be able to worship here under God's great creation and to sing His praises. Second Samuel 24 says this again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord, the king still see it. But why does my Lord, the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora and from the city that is in the middle of the valley towards Gad and to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon. They came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hittites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah of Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or shall, your shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. When the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arun at the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came to that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Arunah said to the king, May the lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arunah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. 
Well, there's something special about beginnings and endings. And uh, sci scientists tell us that we're, our brains are actually wired to remember things that come first and remember things that come last. There have been a number of studies that psychologists have done where uh, participants have get, been given different words that they have to memorize. And they've found that the words that are given at the beginning tend to be uh, memorized pretty well. And then it kind of goes down in the middle and then goes up at the end. So the beginning and the ending are the things that we remember the most. He's on the bottom And it right. kind of makes sense because when you think about a story, usually the most important parts of a story are the beginning and the ending. You know, I have this bad habit now, now that I've gotten old, of sleeping during movies. Even if I'm interested in the movie, I'll start out watching it and I'll, I'll kind of stay awake for the introduction. I'll find out who the characters are, what the kind of main plot of the story is. And then somewhere in the middle, I'll fall asleep. And what's interesting is that occasionally I'll wake up right near the end of the story. And sometimes I'll kind of figure out what the plot is, what happened. And sometimes I feel like I didn't really miss much. Because what's the most important part of a story? It's the beginning and the ending. It's like in school when you know I used to write essays. It's like if you had a really good introduction, a really good conclusion, you could kind of put some fluff in the middle and be okay. Today, the passage that we're looking at that we just read is the conclusion, the ending okay. to the book of Second Samuel, and in essence, the ending of First and Second Samuel because they're kind of a unit together. And as we look at this ending, it's quite an interesting ending. And we've kind of been tracking through First and Second Samuel, and I could think of a number of fitting endings to the story of Samuel and the story of King David. I could think of the story ending as David defeats Goliath and becomes king and lived happily ever after. I could think of it ending after the kingdom is restored after David's sins. I could think of an ending in chapter 23 that we looked at last week where David kind of gives his final pronouncement to the people. But in this story, it seems like it just kind of ends. It's like one of those movies. I don't know if you've ever watched one of these movies. Uh, for me, it's usually like a romantic comedy or something where I'm like waiting for something to happen. And then I get to the end and I'm like, that's it. That's the whole story. And I feel a little bit like that as I'm reading this story, it seems like it ends abruptly. It says that the people of Israel, God was angry at the people of Israel, presumably because of their sin. And then David uh, does the census where he goes and he counts the people, presumably uh, trusting in his own resources, trying to measure up who he has rather than trusting in God. And then God brings this judgment upon him. Gad comes to him, this, uh, a prophet, and says, you can choose between three punishments. Either you're going to have uh, three years of famine, three months of being on, on the run from your foes, or three days of pestilence, or another way of translating that is pan pandemic or plague. And he chooses the plague. And it says in the text that 70,000 people died. After this, David cries out for mercy, asks to take the people's place, that there would be one to pay for the people's sins. And then God sends again the prophet Gad who tells David to go to the threshing floor of a man named Aruna the Jebusite who we don't know a whole lot about. And so David goes to this man Aruna, asks for uh, this land to build an altar. Aruna offers to give it to him and David's like, well, if it's an offering, I'm going to have to pay for it. I want this to be significant. So he pays for this land. He builds an altar. 
and then after that the, the disaster is averted. And you look at the story of First and Second Samuel and it just seems so abrupt and so out of place that it would end here. But I think if we look a little bit closer, we'll find that it is actually the perfect ending. And I think as we look at this ending, I think it can inform how we view God and how we view our relationship with God. But in order to understand the ending of the book of 2 Samuel, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to see the trajectory that Samuel is painting. Again, 1 and 2 Samuel are sort of a unit, so we have to go back to 1 Samuel to kind of get the context of what we're talking about here. 1 Samuel begins with uh, the story of Hannah and uh, the story of Samuel being born. And Samuel is kind of the last in the line of the judges of Israel. The judges were kind of a group of leaders who, number one, they judged, but they also led people in battle. Uh, but they were not quite as forceful as kings were. And it wasn't very long before the people of Israel demanded that they have a king. They wanted someone to go out and be their representative to fight on their behalf so that they would have somebody concrete to look to uh, to be their king. So God gives them their request, and he, even though God had been their king, God was the one who gave them the victory. He gives them a king, and the first king that he gives them, his name is Saul. He's the king that the people would expect to be king. Someone who is just a bear of a man, a man's man, ginormous man. Someone that they could look to to be their victor, to be their support. But we know that Saul wasn't focused on the will of God. He didn't fear God. He just went his own way. So then David comes on the scene. David is anointed king and is just a young shepherd boy. He goes out and faces Goliath and believes that God can bring down this great warrior of the Philistines. So after that, David... Uh, becomes king after a time of uh, skirmishing and being on the run from Saul. And then finally David becomes the king of the United Kingdom and it seems like everything is going well and then we know that he falls into sin. He has an affair with Bathsheba, has uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed and that just sets off a, a, a whole host of bad consequences for him. His son by Bathsheba dies. Uh, one of his sons rapes his daughter one of his other sons, Absalom, kills another of his sons and then leads a rebellion against him. Then finally he gets some peace again, but then there's another rebellion and a famine. And then we have peace again for a little bit. And then we see that we come to this passage that we just read where David sins in numbering the people, not trusting in God's strength, trusting in his own provision. And then the pestilence and the subsequent altar that was made. Now, when we look at 1 and 2 Samuel, these books are essentially an experiment in kingship. In other words, what would it look like for Israel to have a king? And we see first where Saul becomes king. We see Saul's kingship is an utter disaster. He doesn't rule with justice. He doesn't lead the people in victory. He doesn't lead the people to God. It's an utter disaster. But then we look at David, who is a man after God's own heart, and in essence, it looks like his reign is also a failure. I mean, we look at his life and all the different stories that we looked at, and there are so many ways that he failed. There are so many ways that he fell short in uh, murdering Uriah, and the way that he was a parent, and the way that he didn't give justice to those under his care. And yet in this passage and in this story, we see that God is giving Israel a king, not the king that they desired, but the king that they needed. 
They desired a king who was going to lead them in battle, that was going to give them a victory. But what they needed was a king who was going to lead them to God. A king that was going to lead them back into relationship with God. In chapter 24, verse 1, it says that God was angry with Israel. And, we, and again, we can presume that was because of Israel's sin. We don't know exactly what sin that was. And then he, David sins by calling for a census. So in essence, what happens is David, the king, he sins, and he's unable to restrain Israel's sin. So in essence, he's failing in that kingship mandate. And yet at the end of this story, we see that he builds this altar. And as he builds this altar, God's grace flows on Israel. And what's significant about this is this is going to be the place, this place where the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite is the place where Israel is going to build their temple. And that's where Solomon is going to build the temple. And that's where generation after generation of people, of Israelites, are going to offer sacrifices. And so throughout First and Second Samuel, we see the failures of Israel, the failures of Israel's first king. But the last thing that we're left with is a picture of grace. A picture of God's favor. The last thing we're left with is the fact is, is this reality that though Israel's kings and though Israel's people are going to sin, there's going to be grace. There's going to be a sacrifice. And again, we see that Israel is going to offer sacrifices in the temple for generation to generation until the time when the true temple, Jesus, is going to come and offer one sacrifice once and for all. And so the conclusion of 2 Samuel, we might say it this way, sin may reign, but grace will win. Sin may reign, but grace will win. And when we think about it that way, I don't think there could be a more fitting ending to the story. The failing of, people, of the people of Israel, the failure of Israel's king, and yet the hope that sacrifice can be made. The hope that grace can reign and people can come back into a relationship with God. Later in the New Testament, we see that Jesus, the true temple, comes and he changes people's story. C.S. Lewis once said this, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. We see that as Jesus encountered people who came to him in faith, we see that grace always had the last word. We see him encounter a man named Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, tax collectors in that day and age were people who were notoriously crooked. They would just take what would belong to Caesar, and then whatever they wanted to take after that, they would just take for themselves. Not only were they corrupt, but they were also considered to be traitors because they were working for the Roman occupation. And so Jesus comes to this man who is completely crooked, and he says to him, follow me. And Jesus gets up from his tax collector's booths and follows after Jesus, becomes one of the most significant and devout disciples of Jesus' inner circle. Ends up going on to write the first gospel of the New Testament. Grace had the last word. Jesus encounters a commoner, a fisherman named Peter. Peter is prone to speak before he thinks. He's prone to fear before he believes. And we see that throughout his life. And then we see at the end Near the end, when Jesus is about to die, that Peter denies him three times. And yet, Jesus restores him. Jesus meets him and says, Peter, feed my lambs. He says, Peter, I'm not done with you. I still have a mission for you. Grace had the last word. 
Jesus encountered a man possessed by demons who lived among the tombs running around naked who was completely out of his mind. And Jesus met that man and cast those demons out. And it says in the, uh, the book of Mark that this man was clothed in his right mind sitting next to Jesus. We see that Jesus encountered a man who was born blind, never knew what it was like to be able to see. And Jesus encountered that man, changed his story, changed his destiny. We see a man that, or a woman that Jesus encounters in John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman. Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. Men didn't think that women in that day were uh, capable of talking theology, and yet Jesus meets her. This woman is spiritually thirsty. She has five husbands. She had five husbands. The person that she's, she was with wasn't her husband. And she's spiritually thirsty, and Jesus meets her. And shows her grace and tells her about the living water that can satisfy her soul. Jesus encounters a criminal as he's dying on the cross. A man who deserved to die, who was a thief. And he reaches out to Jesus and Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Grace had the last word. Jesus encountered a man named Saul or Paul. He was a persecutor of God's church. He was hell-bent on destroying God's people and murdering the people of Jesus. And yet Jesus meets him and his trajectory changes. Grace has the last word in his life and he becomes one of the most devout followers of Jesus who wrote, who wrote about half of the New Testament. Grace had the last word for anyone that came to Jesus in faith. Grace had the last word. It didn't matter what their beginning was. It didn't matter what their background was. Grace won the day. The question I have for us to consider today does grace have the last word in my life? Is my life built upon what Jesus has done for me, or is my life defined by my past, the mistakes that I've made, the things that have been done to me? In the culture that we're living, living in, I think that what we often do is we pretend like we all have it together. We pretend like we don't have guilt. We pretend like we don't have shame. We can pretend like we don't have insecurity. But this is something I'm confident of. Confident that each and every one of you who are listening is desperately insecure and desperately in need of Jesus. I'm desperately insecure, desperately in need of Jesus. We are all broken. We are all in need of grace. But we want to hide that. We don't want to show that to the world. In a recent New York Times article, columnist David Brooke argues religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. To make his point, Brooks quotes from a brilliant essay by Wilfred McClay called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Brooks writes, technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility. And responsibility, McClay notes, leads to guilt. Since you and I see a picture of a starving child in Sudan, and we know inwardly that we're not doing enough. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. We're still shaped by religious categories and the need to feel morally justified. And yet, here's the problem that Brooks identifies. He says, and yet we have no clear framework or set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. 
says there's sin, but there's no formula for redemption. We all have guilt. We all have brokenness, but we don't have a way to deal with this. There's a survey that was done of millennials that, uh, from the UK, uh, I think it was last fall. Uh, millennials ages 22 to 38, and it revealed a number of statistics about how uh, millennials view themselves. 80% of millennials in the survey believe that they were not good enough in virtually all areas of their life. 75% of the survey's respondents admit that they kind of constantly felt overwhelmed by pressure to succeed in their careers, to find romantic relationships, meet others' expectations, and maintain a presence on social media. In all, 80% of respondents even said that these worries have negatively impacted their sleep and admit that their overall mental health has suffered. The pressure, where is it coming from? 25% of respondents say that their number one source of pressure is their parents, followed by 20% of respondents who cite social media, 17 say their peers and friends. But a lot of pressure comes from within, about 50% saying they routinely place an unfair amount of pressure on themselves to succeed. So we all have brokenness, we all have fear, we all have guilt, we all have insecurity, and the way that our culture tells us to deal with it is to kind of tell ourselves that we're okay. Tell yourself that you're beautiful, tell yourself that you're sufficient, tell yourself that you're enough. We say, just keep telling yourself that, and we try to tell ourselves that, but then we see our brokenness and we realize that we're lying to ourselves. We realize that we're not as capable as we thought or hoped that we would be. We realize that there's an ugliness in our hearts that we can't deal with. And so just telling ourselves that we're okay, telling ourselves that we're enough, is never going to cut it. Because we know beneath the surface that there's more. But the good news of the gospel is that who we are doesn't have to define us. The good news is that grace can define us. What Jesus has done for us can define us. Grace can have the last word in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this the great exchange. Our sin goes on Christ. Jesus took our punishment. And Jesus' righteousness, his perfection, as theologians say, is imputed to us. So that as God sees us, he no longer sees us as broken and insecure and guilty. He sees us as perfect and beautiful and holy. And as we walk with him, he starts to make us that way. Positionally, we're declared holy, we're declared righteous. But as we walk with him, he starts to change us and make us look more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Over a hundred years ago, uh, in a Scottish seaside inn, there were a bunch of fishermen who had just got enough from a long day of fishing. And uh, they were just kind of talking there, and then there was a, a server who was walking by. She was carrying a teapot. And uh, one of the fishermen kind of got carried, carried away telling a fish story and just said, oh yeah, the fish was this big. And as he was doing that, he hit the teapot and the teapot went all over the wall, beautiful whitewashed wall, and it had this big brown spot on it. Now in that day and age, there, were no, there wasn't a Sherwin-Williams or a Home Depot. It was a lot more involved to paint or touch up a wall than it would be today. So the owner of the inn came over and 
was very upset about this. He's like, oh, the whole wall is going to have to be repainted. But then he heard a voice that said, perhaps not. There was a voice of someone sitting in the corner booth. Everybody's eyes turned to this man in the corner booth. The owner of the inn said, what do you mean? This man said, well, let me work with the stain. If my work meets your approval, you won't need to repaint the wall. The stranger picked up a box and went to the wall. Opening the box, he withdrew pencils, brushes, some glass jars of linseed oil and pigment. He began to sketch lines around the stain, to fill it in here and there with dabs of color and all different shading. Soon a picture began to emerge. The random splashes of tea became the picture of a beautiful deer, the beautiful antlers. The bottom of the picture, he signed his name and then left. After, the, after he left, the owner of the inn went up and looked at the wall, and he was amazed to find the signature E.H. Lansier, who was one of the most famous painters in the area. He was able to take something that was broken, take something that was ugly, and make it into something beautiful. And that's what God can do to us. Our past doesn't need to define us. Grace can have the last word. So again, what has the last word in your life today? Is it grace? Is it the cross? Maybe there are some here who have never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We live in broken times. We live in times of anxiety. There's one thing I can tell you for sure today. That's that Jesus loves you, that Jesus cares about you. And you don't have to be defined by who you were. You don't have to be defined by your brokenness. You can be changed today. The Bible says the way that we do that is by faith, by turning to God in faith. The best illustration I think of when I think about faith is the illustration of marriage. When you come and you marry someone, you, go, you, you come to your wedding day and you commit, I'm going to do life with this person. I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know exactly everything about that other person. But as much as I know about them, I want to follow and do life with this person. And that's what we do when our, what our faith in Christ in Christ. We come to Jesus and say, I might not know all about you. There's a lot of questions that I have, but I want to walk with you. I want to do life with you. I want your righteousness to become mine. And when we do that, he comes in and changes us and he makes us new. If you're here and you've never done that, I encourage you to make today the day that you put your faith in Christ. And I'll give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. But for those of us who are believers, are we living in light of the cross? Are we living in light of our identity? There was once a man who saw that his friend was depressed and went up to his friend. He said, say, you look depressed. What are you thinking about? His friend said, my future. He said, well, what makes your future look so hopeless? He said, my past. See, when we're focused on our past, our future doesn't look so great. But grace can have the last word. We don't need to be defined by who we are. We can be defined by what Jesus has made us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this illustration in the book of 2 Samuel that despite Israel's sin, despite the failure of these human kings, that grace had the last word. And we thank you that grace can have the last word in our lives, that we don't need to be defined by our brokenness, by our sin by the things that we've done, by the things that have done, been done to us, that grace can have the last one.
there's anybody here who's never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, with every head bow, eye closed, you might just want to repeat a prayer after me. It's not a magical prayer. It's just an expression of your heart to God. The beginning of a relationship with Him. Say something like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I know that I'm broken. I know that I'm in need of Your grace. Jesus, I believe that You died for me. I believe that you rose again. I believe that you can give me new life. I believe that grace can have the last word in my life. Jesus, I want to follow you with all of my heart. Lord, we, for those of us who are believers, Lord, help us to live in light of your cross and resurrection. Help us to live in light of the fact that we have been forgiven. That even though sin has reigned, grace will win when we put our faith in you. Lord, help us to follow you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name.